Welcome everyone to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast, the podcast focused on leadership. The episode will begin shortly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone. I hope you had a very happy Labor Day. The day we celebrate work and workers and certainly the collective spirit, what we've talked about here for the last three episodes of the Dr. John Bedker Leadership Podcast. I've gotten some great feedback. I'm really appreciative of that. So I want to thank you for that as well. And once again, to say welcome. I'm John Bedker, your host. We're going to focus on a bit of a sequel in collectivism today. Comments that have been made by the Secretary of the Treasury. I'm going to begin, though, by talking about a little bit on diversity. It's what makes, I think, America a great country, is the diversity of its people. It's a perhaps overused, sometimes trite phrase. We are the benefactors of the diversity of all our people. Well, what happens in that union context? Well, I want to tell a quick story, uh, a story that I've learned recently, but it's an important one because oftentimes in this series, I've tried to sell the benefits of labor, of collectivism, of this rising tide raising all boats. But you know that we live in this real world where people are diverse. They are different and they have different points of view. And not everyone wants to do the right thing. So let's be honest and upfront about that. It's not a reason to not be a part of a union. It's not a reason to, be, to not embrace collectivism. But it is a reality of the world we live in. So let's not be naive to that. And here comes a quick story. Flight attendants at American Airlines, I mentioned in an earlier podcast, talking about taking a strike vote. One of the first things that happens, though, is they'll start to do some informational picketing, and they have voted to do that. Here's the quick story. One of the leaders of the American Airlines Flight Attendant Union came up to another American Airlines flight attendant. Now, this flight attendant had previously been a Transworld airline flight attendant. And many of you may know, but if not, the quick history here. TWA and American merged some years back. Flight attendants that were TWA became flight attendants at American. Well, how did that happen? Well, in the merger, the union leadership at American Airlines said, we will largely staple the former TWA flight attendants to the bottom of the list. Wow. We will not recognize or respect your seniority as we, the company, does this merger. As the union, we will not recognize your worth and dignity. Well, that was a very, very hard pill to swallow for TWA flight attendants. Because one's seniority 
in a union setting basically affects their entire life. What aircraft they fly, what routes they fly, when they fly, what days they have off, what vacation time they get, obviously their pay, their pension, their benefits. So to say to a person who had a number of years seniority, that largely those years will not be recognized, really, really is not consistent with union practice. So, American, now the flight attendants are talking about doing this informational picketing. What do they do? Flight attendant leader for American comes up to this other flight attendant, a former TWA flight attendant, and says, are you going to come? Are you going to participate in the informational picketing on your day off? Are you going to give of your time to come and picket for us, for our union? Well, conversation ensues, but it quickly gets to this point. The TWA, I should say former TWA flight attendant, says, and on this agenda, are you going to unstaple us? Is this one of the gains, one of the benefits to right a previous wrong, to unstaple us and to recognize and respect our seniority and have it restored to us? At this, the American Airlines flight attendant leader walks away. So, we live in a very unperfect world where people don't always do the right thing. In fact, I'm going to argue they did a really bad thing, thinking that that was the way to proceed. And then later asking for them to help them to further advance their agenda. And when asked about, what about what you did to us? Will you correct that and have them literally walk away? So, the feedback I've gotten, largely great, but the reality is there is a percentage of people, often on the right, but nonetheless, a percentage of people that are not pro-union, that do not value collectivism in a way consistent with the union movement. They, in fact, think that poking a hole in that other person's boat will somehow advantage them by sinking the other. Well, today we're going to focus on really two leadership challenges. One, to be process-driven, not outcome-based. What do I mean? Process-driven. Do the right thing. In the case of a merger, recognize and respect the seniority of both parties, not one at the disadvantage of the other, or vice versa. All should be represented. That's the process that over time will pay benefits. And certainly we see this in this airport exchange uh, this past weekend. 
that Union flight attendant, formerly with TWA, a very pro-Union person, would stand up and say, absolutely. But rather, they had to say, are you going to correct the wrong that you did to me that has had a huge impact on my life, my circumstance? And the person walks away. So the process is important and not outcome-based. Well, that works down that hall in the C-suite as well. If you're really concerned about share price, about earnings per share, about the stockholder value, the price of that stock, well, you might say, why should we pay labor, right? Paying the absolute minimum you can and let's, let's make it contentious, right? Well, that is not a process-driven approach that does make sense over time. Not only will the employees benefit, but the company and the stock will benefit. But by being outcome-based, thinking that I want to control that stock price to the best I'm able, and I will do it at the expense of labor, that is, in fact, a losing strategy. So be process-driven, not outcome-based. Don't try to manage that outcome. Try to manage the processes and try to do that really well and do it by doing the right thing. So what do we need to do as leaders to accomplish that? Well, we need to spend the majority of our time on problem solving. In my consulting practice, I cannot tell you how many times I've gone to a meeting. Let's say it was an hour long and you sit down and you're there to observe and gather information, and the vast majority of the time is on problem identification. Let me tell you what's wrong. Let me tell you who, whose fault it was. Let me tell you why they are, are at fault. And you see the clock ticking. And at the end, very little time is spent on problem solving. And that's what leaders need to focus on. So one, be process-driven, not outcome-based. Always be driven by process. And two, spend the majority of your time as a leader on problem solving. You know what? You went to that meeting and everybody knew the problem. And if not, it wouldn't take long to make it clear. People understand the problem. The challenge is in solving the problem. And so here on post-Labor Day, Labor Day just this past weekend, there was a series of releases made by the U.S. Department of the Treasury on August 28th, 2023. The Treasury Department Deputy Assistant Secretary for Microeconomics, that's Laura Fisherin released a first-of-its-kind report on labor unions, highlighting the evidence that unions serve to strengthen the middle class and to grow the economy at large. Now, I'm going to read some snippets from this release and from the comments from Janet Yellen, the Secretary uh, of the Treasury, um, because I think as a sequel to our 
series on collectivism, these comments are important because they focus on processes to make things better in the workplace. And they focus on doing the right thing, the ultimate challenge for leaders. Let me finish with a few comments from Laura Fisherson. Over the last half century, the middle-class households have experienced stagnating wages, rising income volatility, and reduced intergenerational mobility, even as the economy as a whole has prospered. Unions can improve the well-being of middle-class workers in ways that directly combat these negative trends. Pro-union policy can make a real difference to middle-class households by raising their incomes, by improving their work environments, and boosting their job satisfaction. In doing so, unions can help to make the economy more equitable and robust. Okay, short comments there from the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Microeconomics. Let me get right to the comments made by Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury. She says, while we've emerged quickly from the pandemic, and there have been many positive trends over the past decades, there have also been persistent challenges. Middle-class wages and household incomes have stagnated in recent decades. Both renting and owning a home have become more expensive, so have education and health care. With today's call, we're releasing a Treasury Department report which presents the case that unions can play a role in addressing the challenges faced by the middle class. This report is the administration's latest action to strengthen the important role of labor unions in our economy, and it is the Treasury Department's first major effort to lay out the rationale for why we think this is so important. Now here, folks, read Problem Solving. We know there's a problem with all of these issues she raises. What are we going to do about it? The Treasury Department's report finds that unions raise wages of their members by around 10 to 15 percent. We also observe that union workers have greater access to critical fringe benefits, such as retirement benefits, medical benefits, and life insurance. Unions also impact personnel practices, bringing about better workplace grievance systems and improved workplace safety. I began my career as a labor economist, and I found in my own academic work that these non-monetary factors are a key driver of job satisfaction. They are also critically important to a worker's well-being. Unionization also has a spillover effect. Competition means workers at non-unionized firms may see increased wages too. Heightened workplace safety norms can pull up 
whole industries. Benefits also spill over to workers, families, and to their communities. Importantly, our research also finds that unions fuel equality. Today's unions benefit all demographic groups. Unions reduce race and gender wage gaps by encouraging explicit and anti-discrimination measures and egalitarian wage practices. Working parents, including mothers, benefit from more scheduling predictability, which is more likely in unionized workplaces. Black men, who have the highest union membership rates of any demographic group, have also been particularly hit by the trends experienced by the middle class as a whole. They, therefore, may be particularly poised to benefit from unionization. Taken together, these findings challenge arguments that unions hold back growth. Unions could contribute to reversing the stark increase in inequality we've seen in recent decades. Promoting economy-wide growth. There are also many cases of unions improving productivity. President Biden executive order on worker organizing empowerment called on each federal agency to take steps to improve opportunities for building worker power. These were the comments this past Labor Day by Secretary Janet Yellen. I've only read part of it, but I think you get the message and it is clear. Unionization, collectivism, is a plus. No doubt, no question about it. And so we have to now begin to say, all right, so how does it manifest itself? Okay, what, what, could, what could our government do in this time of thinking about how to problem solve? How does that manifest itself? All right, I'm going to run through a list. It's lengthy because much has been done and the release of this report details it. So while I'm skipping many pages, I will tell you that we will post this full release on the website. Most of you know it, but if not, drjohnbedkerleadership.com. There you go. Pretty easy. Okay, so here they are. The actions taken, again, by the Biden-Harris administration to advance this progress. Start by making the statement that I began with. It's not a perfect world. There are unions and union leaders that are not doing the right thing. We need to call them on that. But by and large, and I will say overwhelmingly, the advent of the increase in union membership, in union activity, has been an absolute gain for the American workplace and the American economy. Okay, quickly. Here 
are some of the advances. Prioritizing the passage of the Protecting the Right to Organize Act and the Public Sector Freedom to Negotiate Act. Next, appointing a general counsel and board members to the National Labor Relations Board, committed to protecting the right of workers to organize in the workplace. Increasing the funding of the National Labor Relations Board to enable them to expand enforcement activities. Those people that are not doing the right thing, let's hold them to be accountable. Creating the White House Task Force on Worker Organizing and Empowerment, which, under the leadership of Vice President Harris, works with agencies on ways to use their existing statutory authority to support worker organizing and bargaining. So, enforcing the rules we already have, a good thing. Signing Executive Order 14063, which requires the use of project labor agreements on federal construction projects of $35 million or more. Signing Executive Order 14003, to promote the rights of federal employees to collectively bargain. Launching the Good Jobs Initiative to ensure the provision of critical information to workers, employers, and government, including about the union advantage as they work to improve job quality and create access to good jobs free from discrimination and harassment for all working people. Promoting, quote, know your rights, in quote, initiatives to provide workers with better information about their organizing and bargaining rights. Announcing a new rule to raise wage standards of construction workers by updating prevailing wage regulations issued under the Davis-Bacon and related acts, which require payment of locally prevailing wages and fringe benefits to more than 1 million construction workers. Wow, that will be a huge improvement. Requiring employers to pay prevailing wages and abide by apprenticeship requirements to claim the full value of many clean energy tax incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act as part of the Treasury Department's implementation of the law. So what did we say? One, be process-driven, not outcome-based. I think here we see processes detailed, outlined, to make things better, to do the right thing, and to hold those not doing so responsible. And two, to say, let's be problem solvers. There's lots of problems out there, and we've identified many of them. Look at the number of bullet items that I just read and think about solving problem after problem after problem. It's not complete. Not 100%. Never will be. But it is a step in the right direction. Many steps in the right direction. 
Let's not forget that. All right. I hope, again, everybody had a great Labor Day, a happy Labor Day. I hope you got to spend time at home and with family. There's a lot going on in our workplaces and a lot to come this fall. Let's hope our leaders, union leaders, corporate leaders, all strive to do the right thing. Thanks so much, everyone. Take care. We'll talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. John Bedker's Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends and, of course, please follow our podcast and subscribe. Thank you again for tuning in.